break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back on The Punch-Out, 4th of February, 2022. Happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show as we... Always have for you. Want to get into the January jobs numbers here in the United States and what that means about the economy more broadly. But before we get to that, we want to talk about the meeting between President Xi and Putin in China today. (laughs) President Xi Jinping of China and President Vladimir Putin of Russia met on Friday in Beijing just before the opening of the Winter Olympic Games, which are being held in China. As President Putin noted, the two leaders often meet before the Games in their respective countries, stretching back to 2008, Summer Olympics in China. But this year, clearly the meeting took on greater significance given the current geopolitical tensions between the U.S., Russia, and China, who the U.S. has identified in their national security strategy as their biggest opponents. The meeting itself was in many ways uneventful in terms of concrete agreements on the economic and military front, but it did give an important glimpse on the political front into the broader vision of world affairs the two nations are seeking to project to counter the unipolar imperial vision of the United States. The issue most discussed in the media about the summit is the one major economic factor of it, and that's the announcement of a new large gas deal between the two countries, an expansion of their already significant cooperation in this area. And this should not be seen as some are presenting it as a turn away from European energy markets by Russia, but it is, however, a signal to European countries. Russia does not want China to be its only market, nor does China want to be dependent on Russia solely for natural gas. Both want diversity on this front. However, as Chinese demand for gas reaches similar levels as the EU demand for gas over the next eight years, at the end of which it's supposed to be relatively similar, competition by consumers for the gas being produced will grow. China is a steady, reliable market. Europe, as recent events have shown, is not, in fact, a steady, reliable market, and sales agreements can easily be disrupted by geopolitical concerns. This means Europe could end up on the short end of the stick in the long term, where countries see China as their first market and orient in that way, leaving Europe to pay a premium or getting squeezed out to a degree when there are market disruptions and shortages, and just generally to not be highest on the list as gas-producing countries build out their infrastructure towards the various markets. So in sum, the Russia-China gas agreement is a signal to Europe that placing politics before business is only going to complicate things like energy flows, the key ingredient for a modern economy. As it concerns politics, the summit between Xi and Putin saw both countries reaffirm core concerns of the other. In the joint statement that emerged from the meeting, both nations reaffirmed that they both opposed NATO expansion and expressed concern about the AUKUS military alliance of Australia, the U.S., and the U.K., and also reaffirmed the One China principle. So ultimately, both countries presented a clear united front on issues that they considered to be their core national security concerns. This is actually more significant than it may seem at first glance. 
a major Western strategy towards Russia promoted by Henry Kissinger and seemingly one that many in the Trump administration and ironically enough in European leadership circles agree with is that the West should try to split Russia from China as part of a broader effort to isolate and contain China. It seems fairly clear from these announcements that, at this point, that strategy is totally dead, and that the aggressive policies of the U.S. against both have led them to a point where cooperation against the broader U.S.-led international order is seen as a precondition for their own prosperity. And notably, the statement said that there were, quote-unquote, no limits on the two nations' level of cooperation. And on that note, the bulk of the joint statement was really about presenting a broad outline of what the two nations see as an alternative to the quote-unquote rules-based international order, where the U.S. makes all the rules. At the center of their views is restoring the United Nations to the central role in managing global relationships. And this is also a very clear signal, because the upshot of it is, or would be, an end to unilateral sanctions and wars. Technically, the U.N. Charter sets very specific circumstances in which one can go to war and issue sanctions and requires broad approval of U.N. nations. So by centering the United Nations, China and Russia are saying they want to make it harder for countries to engage in broad sanctions regimes and invasions like the ones the U.S. promotes all around the world. And on top of that, given that it's fairly likely that India and at least one African nation will be added as permanent members of the U.N. Security Council in the nearest future, it's also a signal to countries in the global south that Russia and China want to give them a more substantive voice in world affairs. On a similar note, the joint statement spends a significant amount of time discussing how the issue of democracy should not be explicitly defined in reference to Euro-Atlantic liberal democratic ideas. It also explicitly speaks against the weaponizing of democracy and human rights issues as the basis for unilateral wars and sanctions and stresses the importance of the United Nations as a venue to develop shared understandings on these issues. The other key pillar of the joint statement was that global economic development should be at the center of international relations and there should be a renewed focus on meeting the UN Sustainable Development Goals for the globe by the target date of 2030. Interestingly, and almost an aside, the statement mentioned a desire to revive the Russia-India-China format of talks. This could potentially be huge if it opens up a new front to revive relations between China and India, which are at an extremely low ebb. Only Russia really could mediate that. So as a close ally of both, it's certainly an area to watch in the next few months to see about what the real repercussions from this meeting may be. In sum, the Xi-Putin meeting is designed to express strength against Western attempts to isolate both countries and limit their growth. And it is also a signal to the rest of the world that both countries are open to and looking for greater global cooperation, creating space for more countries' voices in global affairs, ending a lot of the dangerous arbitrariness of sanctions, and placing development ahead of conformity to Western policy goals in terms of the broader global agenda. And it marks something of a turning point because Russia and China have, in the main, hesitated to be seen as promoting an alternate global agenda, which they now seem to be leaning into a bit more. Whether or not that results in greater global cooperation or greater global confrontation is mainly up to whether or not the U.S. and other Western nations are willing to relinquish their global imperial ambitions. New jobs numbers are out in the United States and all the analysts are raving about how great they are. The U.S. economy added 467,000 jobs in January, which was significantly better than expected. And most are spinning that as a sign that the economy is just going gangbusters. It is, without a doubt, a sign that the economy continues to improve from the depths of despair it sunk into in 2020, relatively quickly at that. But beyond that, 
quite a bit of how one chooses to look at the economy is more or less a matter of perspective and interpretation. There's a subset of commentators on the left end of the spectrum who are going out of their way to celebrate all this, saying that the rapidity of the economic recovery is proof positive of why progressive policies are better than conservative ones. The argument runs along the lines of the fact that the rapid economic recovery is predicated on the emergency policies around unemployment, childcare, and other forms of social aid, as opposed to, in the wake of the 2008 crisis, the policies of austerity, which meant the recovery took a very long time. So comparing 2008 to 2021, the point is it shows progressive policies do more to stimulate economic growth than austerity and trickle-down economics. Now, this is, of course, true, but it is a touch misleading. A major reason for the recovery is the fact that the government chose to more or less abandon any serious pandemic-related public health measures and prioritize keeping the economy quote-unquote open. So while, yes, it is true that progressive policies are better than conservative ones and that there is some proof of that from the last year or so, it's also true that public health should have been the priority and social supports massively expanded to facilitate that, which may have led to worse short-term economic indicators, but also a far less costly recovery. And on top of that, there is a certain perversity to how we even evaluate economic data under capitalism, where vast social inequality is just the cost of doing business and where quote-unquote good is extremely relative. Take, for instance, the unemployment rate, which remained mainly unchanged in January at 4% under the official measure. Now, as has been noted many times by many people, the official rate in and of itself is a bit of an undercount. But just sticking with the official rate here, that 4% unemployment corresponds to six and a half million people. Well, six and a half million unemployed people doesn't sound as great, right? Some say the labor force participation rate is actually a better measure of unemployment. It measures the percentage of the working age population that is working and looking for work. And since it looks at the whole working age population, it includes subsets of people the official unemployment numbers exclude. In January, the labor force participation rate was 62.2%. So in other words... 38% of the working age population is not working. That also, you might say, sounds far worse than when you hear something like 4% unemployment. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that, and this is good news, wages were up again in January and also noted that over the last 12 months, wages were up nearly 6%. The BLS also noted relatively recently that over the last year, the consumer price index, a stand-in for inflation more or less, has gone up 7%. So wages have rightfully increased, but have still not kept up with inflation, which probably accounts for why in January, early January, 30.8 million people told the Census Bureau they found it very difficult to pay for their usual household expenses in the previous week. So again, good and bad in terms of the economy are quite relative. And in many ways, even when things are subjectively good, they are still so far from adequate, fair, or equitable, it does make you wonder how relevant these sorts of evaluations of good or bad really are. I absolutely understand the desire to point out that the recovery in the last year has been faster than that after 2008 because there was less austerity. But it's important not to get carried away on that point. The reality is the capitalist economy is not and cannot work for working and poor people. As we've seen time and again, it rewards the wealthy at the expense of everyone else, no matter what you do. That's the punch out for today. 
We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.